If you're a regular Geek's Guide to the Galaxy listener, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. And I want to give a special thank you to Real Misery in the Netherlands, who just gave us this five-star review. It says, I have no idea how I came across Geek's Guide earlier this year. It has very quickly become my favorite show. I've discovered many brilliant authors that I hadn't heard of before. One that comes to mind is Ada Palmer, interviewed in episode 495. What a genius writer. It doesn't stop with new authors. The discussions about various series and movies are incredibly informative, often hilarious. David Barkertley is so well-read, I learn something from every show. Also appreciate the efforts of John Joseph Adams and the regular panelists. I'm working through the backlog. On to episode 475 as I write this. So big thanks again to Real Misery for that great review. Alright, so now let's get to our show. Wired.com presents The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. And here is your host, David Barr Kirtley. Hello, and welcome to episode 559 of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. Today on the show, we'll be discussing Frank Herbert's classic novel, Children of Dune, the third book in the Dune series. And we previously discussed the first two books back in episodes 417 and 537, so definitely check those out if you missed them. And this will include spoilers for everything in Children of Dune, so just be aware of that. And I'm joined by three guests. So first up, we've got Andrea Kale, making her 33rd appearance on the show. She's a graduate of the Odyssey Writers Workshop, and her short fiction appears in the Writers of the Future anthology, Fantasy Magazine, and Lightspeed. She's been a television writer, producer, and script supervisor for shows such as Late Night with Conan O'Brien, The Chew, and WWE's Monday Night Raw and Friday Night SmackDown. And she's currently a writer for Pixelberry Studios. So, Andrea, welcome to the show. Good to be here, Dave. The next up, we've got Matthew Kressel making his 32nd appearance on the show. His novel Queen of Static, the follow-up to his groundbreaking novel King of Shards, is available now. And he recently launched a newsletter of writing advice over at outerdeep.substack.com. Together with Ellen Datlow, he hosts the monthly Fantastic Fiction reading series in New York City. So, Matt, welcome to the show. Thanks, Dave. Always good to be here. And also joining us today is Rajan Khanna, making his 23rd appearance on the show. He's the author of the post-apocalyptic novels Falling Sky, Rising Tide, and Raining Fire. And his short fiction appears in magazines such as Analog, Lightspeed, and Beneath Ceaseless Skies. His articles have appeared on Tor.com and LitReactor.com. So, Raj, welcome to the show. Happy to be back. Okay, so let's start off with Andrea and have you tell us about your expectations going into Children of Dune. Well, you know, as, as we've talked about in all our other uh, panels on the Dune books, um, you know, I read Dune when I was 14 and it meant quite a bit to me, one of the books that made me want to be a writer. Um, and then the next book, uh, which I went out, well, went out, I stole it from my brother immediately after finishing Dune. Hmm. Um, and I recall from when I was a kid, not being happy with it, um, that it was much more uh, morose and sad and uh, lost that heroic uh, epicness about uh, that was Dune. And when we read it again for our last panel, um, it, it bore out. It was, uh, I think what we talked about was that 
the story's good, but it's just the execution wasn't good. Um, so I wasn't, uh, what I can remember about this book, um, when I read it from my being, when I was 14 was that it was better, but I still didn't like it. Uh, reading it now, um, it's actually excellent book. It's like shockingly good. Uh, and I think the reason I hated it when I was a kid was that it's not a happy ending. It's a tragedy. And specifically, you know, one of my favorite characters was Alia and seeing what happens to her is ac- is really heartbreaking. So um, I, I came into it with lowered expectations and came out thinking this is one of the best books I've read this year. <laughs> wow. Yeah. All right. Interesting. Uh, yeah, I mean, I went into this with sort of rock bottom expectations because uh, I didn't like Dune Messiah that much. And sort of the just the online stuff I read indicated that the fourth book, God Emperor of Dune, is is really the the good one, you know, the good sequel. And that this the, the third book, Children of Dune, is maybe just one that you need to read to kind of hmm. set up God Emperor of Dune, but on its own isn't maybe that great. Um, I don't know if did did you have any sense, Andrea, of kind of what the on what the sort of consensus I, view I, of I, the sequels was? I didn't. I didn't. I don't like going into a book with other people's expectations. Um, but once I finished it, I did go and read uh, some of the commentary on it, like the Dune Wiki. Uh, yeah, people seem to think it's something you just have to get through, which I did not understand. Um, and uh, yeah, I, I just. Um, you know, everybody's got their own opinion. And, you know, after the last panel, I did get some pushback from people in DMs <laughs> telling me I was, <laughs> I didn't know what I was talking about. Um, people seem to really love Dune Messiah, and I don't quite hmm. understand why. <laughs> um, but, you know, let's see if I get pushback on this one. <laughs> Other people don't seem to be of the same opinion. Uh, you might, you I, might I, get pushback on this actual I'm podcast. guessing, <laughs> I, I, from, from the tone of voice, I'm guessing I'm I'm going to, which is fine. I love a good, uh, I love a good fight. <laughs> um, no, but I, that's cool that you liked it, though. I always, you know, it's always nice when uh, people are excited about the stuff that we're talking about, even if I'm, hypothetically speaking, not one of those people. Um <laughs> But uh, how about Matt? What were your expectations going into Children of Dune? Yeah, so um, I think I mentioned on the the previous panel that um, I I first read the books about twenty years ago and read the the first book in in a fugue. And um, all I really remembered about Children of Dune was was the sand trout glove. I think that's probably the most visual image in this that most people remember when, when I'm, I was talking to someone recently uh, about the Dune books and they're like, Oh, is that the one, you know, where, where uh, Leto turns into the worm? I was like, yeah. Um, (laughs) So uh, like Andrea, um, I kind of went in with uh, maybe a a bit lower expectations because Dune Messiah to me was I had very similar feelings. I think that the the ideas were were good, but the execution was flawed. And um, so I went into this uh, not expecting it to to really pull me in in the same way. And I, I found myself at times just blown away by by how deep and resonant and powerful the ideas are. 
And just the depth of thought that Herbert put into this and just going back and reviewing all the plot threads and how they fit together and how he had to plan that from the beginning. Um, and just the philosophical undertones of it. So like, um, I, I have to admit there were times where it was, it wasn't an easy read, right? So like there were times where I had to stop and reread a passage because Mm -hmm. I'm like, wait a minute, this, this is, there's so many different levels that are Mm -hmm. going on in this passage that I need to reread it to make sure I really understand what's going on. And so, you know, at times, it, it, that wasn't conducive to to immersive reading, but the sections that pulled me in the most were like so vivid and so real in my mind. And I may have mentioned this on the on the first Dune podcast with the first book. Is like I almost feel like <laughs> like Herbert himself is taking spice and seeing the future of humanity. I mean, mm. it just this book feels real. It feels Mm -hmm. like it's a lived in world. It feels like this is something when you read this book, you, you experience it along with the characters and it is so vivid and so real in my mind. Um, yeah, I think it's as good as the first book. I think it's, you, you need to read the first two books to get here, but it is absolutely as good. And there are some themes in this (laughs) one I know Raj is. I feel like, <laughs> it's, it's good that we have someone that disagrees I, with us, so we can. I, I agree argue. with that a hundred percent. That it's as yeah. good as the first book, hundred percent. Yeah, yeah. So, so um, I, I find that some of the ideas are even greater than the the mm-hmm. ideas presented in the first book, and I'm super excited to now read, you know, the next book, The God Emperor, right? Because. I just feel like, oh, we just set that up. I I need to find out what happens to humanity next. Yeah. So, okay, I guess I forgot to say in my I, I I'm reading this for the first time. So I think everybody else had read this years ago, but I was coming mm-hmm. to this totally fresh. So just to get that out there. And so then, Raj, what were your expectations? <laughs> well, I mean, <laughs> coming this, into this Children is, of Dune, I didn't read it quite as young as Andrea, as I think we've covered before. But um, this is where I tapped out the first time because I got like maybe a quarter of the way through and was like, eh, this isn't for me. And I put it away until recently. And I actually will say, I think I went into it with an open mind thinking coming off of, you know, the last book and actually getting more out of the last book than I think I did the first time. Um, I thought, oh, maybe I, you know, maybe I'll feel differently about it. And maybe I've matured as a reader or something like that. Um, but I like, I won't say I hated it, because I didn't hate it, but I have a lot of problems with it. And and they're very specific problems, I think. And there's a lot of stuff in here in, in the book that I like. Um, but I just found, especially the opening, a slog. It, it didn't really pick up for me until halfway through. And I, I, I think I just question a lot of his choices. I think I agree with Matt that I think the world is great. And he, you know, continues to develop it and his, his ideas about, how things, you know, progress and the future and all that kind of stuff, I think is is fascinating and and is kind of remarkable. But I think as in the execution for me, it just doesn't work. And um, it kind of, I'll just say overall, it it I thought you know, like I had a reason to to finish it, right? So I, I went through it, and it like I said, I got engaged sort of toward the middle of the book, and I was like, okay, maybe maybe you know, this is where. 
it happened. And then it lost me again at the end. So, um, you know, I guess it's like a sine curve what my, my interest was in this book. But so again, I don't want to say it's garbage. It's not, but um, I just didn't connect with it very much at all. Yeah, I mean, I, I also had a hard time getting through this book. And I'll agree with everybody that I think Frank Herbert is a genius when it comes mm-hmm. to world building. Um, I mean, this is possibly the greatest world building of any science fiction novel yeah. that I'm familiar with. And so when it comes to the world building and when it comes to the ideas, this is just absolutely first rate, brilliant, brilliant stuff. Um, you know, but I just, I get bored <laughs> reading his stuff. Um, so that's kind of you know, my issue is that I, I can admire the the ideas in the world building, but the characterization and the pacing uh, don't work quite as well for me. It's interesting, though, Rush. I mean, and, but like I said, I went into this with rock bottom expectations, but I actually found the first third of the book, I, I was really, really enjoying it. Um, and then I found the middle to be a gigantic slog. And then it kind of picked up for me again toward the ending. Um, so it sounds like we had almost exactly opposite. Well, what I find interesting about the first third is that there's really no action. It's all people talking. It's right. people talking. It's it's yeah. Ganima and and Leto talking to one another. It's you know Alia talking to whoever. It's Jessica talking. You see people moving around, but there's no actual like movement. There's no kinetic energy of any sort until. I think that that's where it changed for me in the middle where, or at least maybe there's certain characters that come in. Like I honestly found Leto to be so far into his navel that I just couldn't like engage with him at all. I mean, I, I get he's supposed to be sort of this, you know, he's, he's messed up because he was born with, with all this knowledge and he's like 10 years old, but I couldn't, I, I didn't care about him at all. Like, so when it was like when Duncan showed up and when, when um, Jessica showed up and uh, that kind of stuff started happening. And even Faradin, who I thought was really interesting, those people, I was like, oh, okay, I can, I can get into the, these storylines, but I just, there's just a lot of talking of like vague futures and vague plans that you don't find out until much later. And I'm like, who is this for? Like I, it didn't really even make me excited when I figured it out or when they reveal it at the end. I mean, granted, I'll say that the, the worm stuff, is interesting. Like, like that's, I, you know, the armor and the, here it alludes to, but like, I felt like, again, you said it, Dave, the pacing, it's sort of like, I feel like a lot of the stuff gets revealed right before it becomes relevant. And it could have been kind of woven throughout a little bit better. And, and there's a lot of like playing coy, I felt with the reader, like, oh, I'm going to talk about this stuff and, you know, nobody else knows. And that bugged me. So I, I will agree that Herbert plays coy a lot because he'll allude to stuff in, in some of the characters dialogue that doesn't, that the reader, like you said, doesn't become aware of until hundreds of pages later sometimes. And the first time through, it's like, what's, what are they talking about? What are they alluding to? And then when you go back and read it, you're like, oh my God, that's exactly what he was talking about. He knew this from the beginning. And and that's why I think it's brilliant. I, I do agree that there were parts that were slow. Um, some of this reminded me of uh, the problems that I had with Dune Messiah. I, I, Dune Messiah had this, the exact problem that you had, Raj, where it was just characters sitting around talking, not a lot happening. But I feel in this one, for me, it was more of just, you know, Herbert had to set up the chessboard, right? He had to put all the pieces in their place 
for for the the game to to play for the you know action to happen and yeah it it's not as like um i guess action packed in the sense of the first book where you have you know the the storm of all storms and the worms sieging uh arakin uh it's it's more of a a quieter ending but it, but i feel in some ways it's more effective because it's that quieter ending that it has such powerful repercussions for the future of humanity well it's a for tragic ending it's a tragic ending but it's it's like it's tragic for the people who are going to have to live those 4000 years and it's tragic for for uh for Leto the 2nd but for the people that live after that 4000 years at least according to what Leto is saying they'll actually be the first humans that are free in human history and that is like the opposite of a tragedy right so but um okay yeah. let's let's not get into the ending <laughs> just just yet um <laughs> hand slap actually let me let me actually just set up the <laughs> beginning before we get too deep into this so yeah. so in the last book we were introduced to Leto and Ganima Atreides who are the twin children of Paul Atreides who's like the Kwisatz Haderach, the super-powered guy who can see the future and, and everything. And I think, as Raj mentioned, because they were, because of the circumstances of their birth, they are able to, they were like basically born with all the memories of everyone, of all their ancestors. And so all of their ancestors kind of like live inside their minds, and they're in constant danger of one of these ancestors um, kind of taking over and, you know, getting in the driver's seat and suppressing their like actual identity. And this has already happened to their aunt, Alia, the sister of Paul, who has, you know, so Paul Atreides went off into the desert supposedly to, to die, and his sister became kind of like the emperor of the Imperium. Um, but she has actually succumbed to one of the personalities inside her head, who is the villain from the first book, uh, the Baron Harkonnen. And so um, as the story opens... Jessica, the mother of Paul, has come back to Arrakis. She's been away on their home planet of Caladan for the last 20 years. And so she's come back and um, sort of a, bu a bunch of events are moving or are in motion. The deposed family uh, of the old emperor, the Carino family, they're plotting to assassinate Lito and Ganima and install their heir, Faradin. Uh, in play in the play, or I guess they must be point. Wait, how are they gonna? Now I'm confused because Ali Ali is the one who's actually in charge. They must be planning to yeah, get rid of her somehow regent. too. But she's regent. Right. She's not like emperor. he's right. Like he like Faradin is technically heir to the th heir right. to the throne. So um, Ali is so gonna have, have to step aside sooner or later. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Okay. Um, so any so Andrea, anything else at the, right at the beginning that we should set up in terms of just the basic plot what's going on with the characters and everything i mean you know there's this talk of the preacher and whether or not he's paul um you know and there's uh, you know to pick up on what everybody else was talking about it being slow and having to reread it it's like this is a very philosophical book more much more than dune was uh and you know when you read philosophy there's a lot of going back and rereading to try to understand it it's specifically vague 
because it wants to make you think. And that's what this book does. It makes you think. And I think, I, and I could be wrong. I have not reread Dune since we read it, what, a couple of years ago. But it seems to me that the beginning of Dune also is a lot of people talking. And it doesn't yeah, really it pick yeah. up. I commented it, on that at the time. Yeah. Until and they go to. Yeah. Until they, until they attack. And then mm-hmm. they have, you know, and they, and they escape, Paul and Jessica's escape. And then it really picks up with action. Um, so I think he's, he's doing the same things in Dune as he, uh, in this book as he did in Dune. Um, I don't, maybe this is, I, I don't know why it would seem to anybody else that, that this was different and, and dragged more. Um, well, cause it seemed to well, be let, the same. Let me tell you, and I, I don't have a problem with people talking, but I do have a problem with people talking when I don't understand what their motivations are. And um, that was like by far and away my number one problem with this book is that I found it constantly frustrating that I didn't know whether people like what side is this person on? What do they actually want? Are they a double agent? Are they, you know, telling the truth in the scene or are they hiding something? And it's just like, and I'm, 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 I'm okay with a couple characters where you're not sure what their agenda is, but I felt like there was just nobody here that I could identify with and that I was with emotionally. And because like, like Matt mentioned, I mean, so often characters have plans and then there's like a throwaway line to explain their motivations that was like a hundred pages earlier or like a hundred pages later, or it doesn't appear at all. And, you know, I finished reading this yesterday morning and I went, I spent like all the intervening time going through trying to like find any lines that had to do with character motivation to try to sort out what everyone's motivations were. And it's like really slim pickings. And it was a really exhausting hmm. process trying yeah. to just find. It's interesting. I, I didn't have that experience. Yeah, it could just either. be, you know, we're, we're different readers. Um, yeah. But like, what I, did you know what Jessica's like aim was? Because like people say, oh, she's working for the Bene Gesserit. And then it's again, like unclear. And yeah, even her, at the end, I'm not was, really sure. Her aim you know. was to save House Atreides because she was... Um, still loyal to her her uh, dead duke. That's but she I, almost she almost killed the kids. Like she would have killed the kids if she needed if, to. If they were I, abominations, right? So I, again, like I don't know who she was working for. Still, like I don't know what why she's doing I, any of the things that she's well, doing. Well, because oh, go ahead, Andrew. Well, I was just uh, for me, what she was coming back to do was to fix the mistake she made in the mm-hmm. first place. Mm-hmm. You know, the the mistake she made with Alia, the mistake she made with Paul. Um, I, th- I think that's, that to me, you know, she may have taken talk to the Bene Gesserits, but she's there on her own mission. Yeah. But then that's, why does she wait so long? I mean, because honestly, she, she shows sure. up too late. And I think she also, yes. For Alia. Well, yes. And I have a great deal to say about that. I have right. a great deal to say about that. And I don't know if Dave wants me to go into that now or but later, but. Can, can I just say something in, re- in response to your summary of the beginning, David? Yeah, yeah. Just, just to, because I said I, I tapped out of this. Um, the thing that made me put this down the first time and the thing that got under my skin again the second time is this whole genetic memory thing that Leto and Ganima apparently have, where they have the memories and life experiences of anybody who they can trace their, their DNA from. So I find that idea to be completely ridiculous because for example they're you know they're going back to ancient rome or whatever and uh, greece ancient greece ancient greece and so like they're saying that basically you know a single egg or sperm which carries half of your genetic material also contains the life experiences of that person up until the point that it 
comes out of them, which I find ridiculous. And I, I feel don't like think, I don't think it was supposed to come from the DNA, but but go ahead. But but the, in in the first book, for example, Alia gets the memories. She's born with the memories of all of the Reverend Mothers because that's how they pass their stuff down. So the mm-hmm. Reverend Mother before her would have passed it to her, and she had all the people that came before her, and that was a spice oriented kind of mental thing. And now all of a sudden it's like, cause he calls it genetic memory. And he, he basically says that up until his conception, that's where he, he has yeah. all of Paul's memories. And up until I guess, yeah, all of, all of um, his mother's stuff. Yes. And not only did that bug me just from a, cause I think it's dumb, but it's like, you cannot, I, I, I know that these people, you know, Paul could see the future and all that kind of stuff, but I was willing to buy that. But like, you cannot contain that many like life experiences in a human brain. I get it that the spice sort of does something, but like it, I really had a problem with that completely. And they're like real people just out in the yeah. back going like, Hey, can I step in here and, and say something? That, so could that I, was can my, I one of my biggest problems. That? Sure. Of course. Can I respond to that? So the way I see it is this, is that it's not DNA. I don't, I, I don't think that Herbert was saying that it was direct from the DNA. I think it was like from the moment of conception, that's the point at which the memories begin or end. Um, but the spice lets you view the future, but also the same, it sort of lets you view the past. And I think that that's what's happening to their mind is their mind is opening up to their past ancestry. There's their, their, like they, you know, Herbert says very often that time is, is not this linear thing. It's hap, you know, it's happening all at once. So I, to me, it's like they're seeing their past and, um, you know, Jessica comes back to Arrakis because yes, she's failed with Alia, but also she doesn't want to fail with her uh, grandchildren. Mm -hmm. And that's one of the big setups at the beginning of the book is that Alia, it's pretty sure that she's an abomination. What is an abomination? I mean, he only says it 50 times. So (laughs) basically, right. Basically they have DID, dissociative identity disorder. They, they don't have a, a solid sense of self. And then what happens is one of their ruthless, brutal past selves becomes the dominant personality. Now, the thing is, the Bene Gesserit are actually trained to resist this, but that's why they only do this ritual when they've, they're have they fully trained Bene Gesserit women who are ready to do that. But the problem with Alia was that when Jessica ingested the water of life as a, while she was pregnant, Alia became fully conscious as a fetus. And that's what messed yeah. her up completely. Yeah. That's why she like ran away back to Cal and she couldn't deal with that. Yes. And also, like her Duke, you know, her Duke died. Yes. And like, she just, yeah, all of that stuff is just like sitting with her. So she, that's why she's coming back to Arrakis. She's like, I have to, I have to fix this thing that I, that I broke. And, and um, she wants to make sure that her grandchildren don't suffer the same fate. Well, well, uh, can, be, I, can, I, can I just close the loop on this so, and then I'll shut up about <laughs> okay. it. But like, um, I, I like your interpretation better, Matt, but I, it, it seems to me as like somebody who changed the rules of what he was doing. Cause we never had any inkling that Alia could, could, you know, had the memories and life experiences of her ancestors. We only knew that she had them of all the reverend mothers who had come before and was born fully aware of those experiences. So I feel like he changed 
by this time probably found it more interesting to go into that kind of idea of for the kids and everything. But it just, I'll just say like it, you know, I I don't like it. So, but I understand. I'm I'm basically with Raj on all that stuff. But let me just say about the motivations, because like I said, I spent the whole yesterday and this morning reading, trying to, and I was trying to avoid spoilers for God Emperor of Dune, so that limited me somewhat. But just even reading all these comments from like hardcore Dune fans who've read these books dozens of times and spend their time hanging out on dude message boards, there is no agreement among any of them mm. about what <laughs> any of the agendas of any of these characters are. Okay. And they, they right. even said, like, um, with Jet, like, is Jet, like Raj's point about, is Jessica, like, to what degree is Jessica doing the bidding of the Bene Gesserit? They're like, fans have been arguing about this for decades with no <laughs> agreement whatsoever about it so this is not just my my weird thing like this i mean is definitely- I, I think i think herbert wants you to to also wonder because there's that scene where um uh leto is talking to jessica and he's like and now you realize how much the bene Gesserit have conditioned you so it's like was she there on their behest without even realizing it it's a, yeah i, I well I, yeah. she there is this where she ta- she does at one point think about having seen her sisterhood and being sent there. And she mm-hmm. also wonders if they tricked her. Yeah. Um, and I think the the thing with motivation is that everybody has motivations within motivations within motivations. I mm-hmm. think you know, they, they say frequently a faint within a faint within a faint. Yeah. Um, you know, everybody's got their own agenda. Everybody's got somebody else's agenda. And that's the war within every single character the character conflict within every single character. Do I work for my own aims or do I? you know, um, carry out my orders or, you know, do I think of the future? Do I think of myself? Like, I think that's the, the general conflict within everyone and within, within the story is. Yeah, yeah absolutely. No, no but it's, it's fine for characters to have complicated motivations on different levels and everything, but I just think it should be conveyed to the reader in a clearer way. I mean, there's a, a thing they say in public speaking is like, you got to tell them what you're going to tell them, tell them, and then tell them what you told them, you know, that like, you need yeah, to tell people something. Yeah, but public speaking and selling. That's, you know, that's selling. It's not telling a story. I also, oh, I also wait, 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 like- wait, 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 let me just finish. I just think that you can't, <laughs> if, if it's important what this character's motivation is, it wouldn't hurt to mention a couple times in the course of a 600 page book, not once a hundred pages separated from the point where they actually act. That's all. That's fair. That's fair. But I also feel that, in in some ways, um, what we expect from fiction has changed because one of the thing that that Her- Herbert yeah, does I throughout is is he he jumps points of view all the time, like mm-hmm. sometimes paragraph to paragraph or even in the same paragraph. Mm-hmm. Yes, and and like almost no fiction I read now does that. So yeah. so that's one thing, and then you know th- there's like. I think a lot of fiction, especially like a lot of like fiction classes teach you, oh, you need to establish your character's desires right away and you need to establish setting right away and you need to do X, A, B, and C. And like, I don't think Herbert is from that school. And and I think, um, you know, that may be what you're getting yeah. from it, that you're, you're, you have this expectation from like books written in the last, I don't know, 30 years or so. And maybe this is just written in a different style. It's it's almost like a different culture. Like if we were to read a book, you know, that was originally written in Chinese, there might be cultural differences that we're not getting. I, I wonder if some of yes. that is just, is just that, you know, um, Herbert is not writing with the same 
reference point. Reference, yeah, that that we're used to now. Yeah, I agree with that 100%. We're not, as a, go ahead. Go ahead. No, you finish. Well, I was just that, that it, it, it's it, as I'm reading, I'm thinking this is a very old fashioned written book. Um, and I, I think a lot of the stuff we read from the past, like say Asimov or, or the classics, um, I find that off putting. This wasn't because it engaged me, um, intellectually because the number of references historical references and philosophical references in yeah. this it just blew my mind and you know when i read it at 14 i would never have understand stood half Same. of them Same. and reading that now it's like it's like i'm sitting there marveling at the amount of knowledge that he had to even use these references i mean he talks about agamemnon you know we we yeah. talk about um you know ancient greek and they they talk about how they speak ancient greek that's one of the languages they use in in private between the two twins um you know agamemnon um there's references to ovid to bartlett's a lot of as they say their tyrannic past or their tyrannic Mm -hmm. origins um and it's just unbelievably thick rife with reference to history and literature that i also think yeah no no go ahead no i'm sorry um i also think that you know he's going for a a kind of uh uh, biblical slash religious yes. tone. Oh God, yes. And, and I think that you know, if you read the the biblical texts, it's not they're yes. they're going to say you know Abraham. What he really wanted was a <laughs> you know a, a nice family and a farm and 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 you know maybe a couple of oxen. It, like it's like no, Abraham lived in you know the land of Ur, and you know what I mean. It's like yes. it's 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 just very matter of fact, and it's up to you to sort of interpret it. Um, but yeah, th- there was like so many references to like, I, I was trying to reference, like figure out all the, um, religious references. I, I have Buddhist, Hindu, Muslim, yep. obviously Christian, Jewish references. Um, there's also a lot uh, of ancient Jung- Egyptian, yeah. ancient Egyptian, Jungian psychology. I mean, there's so much in there. Can I just yeah. say, I feel like we were just accused of being unsophisticated readers no. or something. But, um, yes, totally. I, I mean, I mean to, to, that's to be, my first thought when I think of you, Raj. To, to, be, to be honest, listening to the both of you speak, I mean, I think it might just be more of a, like, I, I enjoy the philosophy part, but it's not enough for me. Like, I, I'm reading to find some other connection. I think it's cool, but it, it, a lot of that stuff without more grounding for me as a reader isn't, like, I was like, okay, but like, connect this to something for me. Um, I, I mean, I do, I, I think... Toward the end, especially, I think the philosophy got more interesting about like, you know, what stuff about civilization and, and what people need and what people don't, what societies need, what societies don't. I think that was more interesting, but it just, it, you know, like I, these days when I read, I need to have some kind of emotional or, or you know, character connection to, to feel that level of attachment to something and um i didn't really get that especially because it starts off with these two kids who deliberately are supposed to be these alien presences um who no one else can relate to and they can only relate to themselves and sort of speak in their own language and i was like okay all right whatever Um, yeah yeah. and and again like i said idea is totally first rate i actually i saw a um like a, a meme or something where it said the first two books of dune are the politics books and the second two books are the philosophy books and then the third two books are the weird sex books. Uh, <laughs> oh, not man, having I'm read them, I can't. 
I can't comment on that. But I'm all, I mean, I love philosophy. I love ideas. I love the history and everything. I'm just like, my reaction to this book was it seemed like an intellectual exercise and it didn't Mm -hmm. seem like he was that interested in the characters. Like, you know, he had all these ideas Mm -hmm. he wanted to explore and he sort of like was going through the motions with the characters is how it read to me because the ideas were what he was really interested in. Yeah, I mean, don't you feel that Alia is given short shrift in this book? I mean, we we just, she's painted as a villain from the beginning. We see a few times that she's fighting the Baron, but she, I I feel like there was way more that they could have done with her struggle before she gave in. It was just like from the beginning, she was, you know, doing terrible things and plotting. And I never felt her a sympathetic character the way that he portrayed her. Um, I wanted to, I felt like there was, it was there in the background based on what we were led to believe her life was growing up. But I felt like he didn't give a crap about that when we were, when I, he I was writing. I, it. I, I mean, I, I, go ahead, Andrew. I was just going to, I disagree with that, but if, do you, <laughs> I, I just think uh, Ollie is the most heartbreaking character here. And I felt very attached to her. I don't know if that, it's because I'm bringing it over from the first two books, but you know, Ali is set up as the villain of the story, but she's, she's not, she's not the, she's the villain of the story, but she's not a villain. You know, she's, she's the true tragedy. Leto's a tragedy. Leto's end is a tragedy or Leto's fate is a tragedy, but she is, she's the true tragedy of the book, you know, in the classic sense, going back to, to Greek drama in, you know, Oedipus and the Orstaya and, and, you know, Shakespeare's Macbeth you know, the noble character who falls from grace and, and, mm-hmm. you know, loses their soul, to, you know, on the, on account of their own faults, like pride, rage, greed, but Alia falls from, because of her weaknesses, but those are weaknesses that she's born with. Those are weaknesses of, of others. And, and specifically, and here's what I was, you know, I wanted to go in, uh, Raji mentioned, why did, uh, Jessica wait so long to come back? That's the problem right there. Yeah. Jessica's the villain of the story, really. Jessica's a villain. She yeah, is she's hiding out in luxury. Exactly. She's incredibly selfish. And when you look back at the at the earlier books, or at least Dune, because she's not in Dune Messiah, she's incredibly selfish. She's selfish when she um uh gives birth to a son when she's supposed to give birth to a daughter, leading to all this, what to what happened. She's selfish when she takes the water of life when she's pregnant. She knows what it'll do and she does it anyway. She sacrifices her daughter to save her son. And then she ran out on her on her two-year-old daughter and left her there to deal alone with with the with the consequences of her actions instead of staying on Dune and being the guide that she needed. Ollie's downfall is specifically because of Jessica. And like I came out of this horrified by how what a terrible person Jessica is. And then she comes back as judge and, and and jury on her daughter in a situation that she created, in a tragic situation that she created. And right. and Alia, the the scene where she struggles with the Baron just fucking broke my heart. And then yeah. the goodbye scene with Duncan again breaks my heart. And then her ending, which is she actually comes back and fights the Baron and she right, falls on right. her sword. She, and she, she sacrifices her life to, to kill the villain in this, which is at the moment, you know, Baron Harkonnen. So she ends up being a tragedy and the hero in that she takes herself out of the game because she knows she can't stand up to him. I agree so, with that a hundred percent. And I just want to add two small things to that. Um, 
one of the themes in in all the Dune books is that there are forces greater than any individual. And I think Alia got hit with these yes. forces right in the face. And that's it's that's why it's a tragedy. And there's also that moment right before she throws herself out the window where she looks at her mother and mm-hmm. you, you see the hint of the old Alia in there. Mm-hmm. You see the hint of the old girl, this helpless girl. And that was to me was heartbreaking because yes. you knew that inside this horrific, you know, external form was was just a frightened little girl. And that that to me broke my heart. And and it I wanted to see them try to reform Alia, but I know like that's not what Frank Herbert does. But uh yeah, yeah it it was uh I found that yeah, heartbreaking too. I just don't think it's on the page. That's that's my that's my criticism, but I agree with you on Jessica. I mean, I think she's she fucked everything up, really. So. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I agree with Rush. I mean, like as I was, you know, like I like I said, I thought the middle section of this book, you know, I just felt like nothing was really happening for a long time. I, I liked the beginning and I liked the ending. So all that stuff you're talking about with Ollie's arc worked well enough for me. Um, but like Raj is saying, like, and and so I was like. I could imagine this. I'm actually really curious now to watch the Sci-Fi Channel adaptation of this because mm-hmm. I could see this being like the the bones of the story. I think are totally solid. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. it's just like like Raj is saying for me, it's the execution where I, I feel like I'm not really like you know psychologically very close to any of the characters. Um, and there's a lot of like pages that are going by where I feel like nothing's happening. But I feel like if you sort of cut out all the dead weight. And, you know, had some um, engaging actors to, to bring life to these characters and, and make you f- connect emotionally with them. I feel like the overall structure of the story is pretty solid. And, you know, I, so now, yeah. like I said, I'm curious to see the adaptation. I, I look forward to, to doing that podcast with you because I, I, did, I did see the show when it came out and, yep, and so. I remember enjoying it quite a bit. So. Yeah, I, I remember thinking it was certainly better than uh, the Dune one. Than the, the previous one, yeah. <laughs> and they... And they- put together it's it's both messiah and children of dune mm-hmm. it's both of them together it's not they yeah. didn't separate them but isn't it they're older right like Lito yes. is older yes now, they, right? they have them as teenagers yeah. Yeah. yeah which i think is actually a good choice because it's especially Although, for because you don't want to think about sex in nine-year-old children. true but in the beginning i will say that i i all I kept thinking back to was the the Lynch version, and and when you know Alia comes out and she goes, "Hello, Baron," when that voice yeah. and like how creepy that is, and I just yeah. kept thinking of those kids being like, "These are the creepiest freaking kids that ever existed," because they walk around talking in other languages like they're adults and talk about having had relationships and lives and what like they, they must freak everyone out. Yeah. Well, they, they did talk about in doing how everybody was terrified of Alia. Nobody wanted to go yep. near her. And the only person she had to talk to was her mother. Yeah. So what do you what do you, you guys who liked who really liked this book? What do you think about what I'm saying about the middle section kind of dragged for me? And I felt like there were all these characters like Namri, um, like Tariq, Javid, um, Maurice, who like never really made much of an impression on me. Um, and I would have to like whenever their names were mentioned later on, I have to be like, wait, who is that again? Um, did all those characters kind of like come alive and work for you? Or do you hear what I'm saying that the middle kind of I felt sort of, I, I mean, I mean oh, go ahead, yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. <laughs> I, I was still going to try to formulate my thoughts on that. Okay. Uh, so I didn't, so, okay. 
it's an epic book. And I think in an epic book, you're going to have secondary and tertiary characters. Mm -hmm. And I think that they serve their role as that. I, I, I don't think they were necessarily there to, to bring the plot forward in any, like, okay. They, they helped the plot along, but I don't think you were meant to get an enormous amount of like story or backstory from, from them. They were just sort of, you know, pieces in the, Mm -hmm. in the larger narrative. So I didn't, I didn't mind that as much. I, I, you know, my only criticism of this book is, is there, there's a couple places where I felt like Herbert was maybe intentionally convoluting the plot in order to make things more mysterious than they were. An example was like when uh, Alia and Lady Jessica were were in the court. It's very obvious that you know Alia wanted to kill her, but uh, Herbert made it seem like it's this complex, multi layered thing, and there was just it seemed like he was like over complexifying mm. something. And I think that if if there's a weakness here, it's his tendency to over complexify mm. some plot elements, but. And then the other thing I will say is that I think sometimes he doesn't allow his characters to feel as much as they could. And I think maybe this is what you're sensing, Raj, that you're Mm -hmm. not fully connecting with them. Because like, for example, you know, Jessica just watched both of her children die, Mm -hmm. right? So both Alia jumps out a window and Paul's murdered in the street and- there's not really any time for her given, like even Alia uh, says it to her before she dies. She's like, y- your son just died. Mm-hmm. And like, Jessica doesn't really react to that, you know? And and then it's kind of, we just like skip ahead. Yeah. There's so, definitely uh, something so- to that because I mean, my two favorite, or one of my favorite character in this whole book is Duncan Idaho because he's the only one that felt human to me. He feels things. He's upset mm-hmm. when he re like his, his, um, his like sadness at recognizing what has happened Mm -hmm. to Alia is so palpable to me that I was like, I was all in on that. And then when he, what he does to Stilgar at the end, like that is my favorite moment in the whole book, I think, because, you know, there's a reference earlier where Jessica tells him exactly what he needed to strip away Stilgar's like civility or whatever. And he just does it for a specific reason. And then only then does Alia have her emotional you know, ap- apotheosis when she she learns what happened to him. And I think that's the turning tide for her. Again, I, I don't have a problem with her arc. I just didn't feel her story the way I wanted to. But Duncan and even Namri, who I hated, like he was a dick. He was just like waiting to kill Leto. And, I, and even though I didn't really love Leto that much, I was like, what the hell is wrong with you? Um, but I felt like he had understandable motivations to me. I understood like what he wanted. I understood who he hated and I understood that I didn't like him. And so like he wasn't my favorite character, but I felt something for around him and Duncan, um, he felt real to me. And I, I, his, his, like he's in two chapters, I think in this whole thing. And yet every time he was, and that's probably why I said the middle started to move for me. It's like, cause he shows up in the middle and he's not even like he's playing other people's games, but he's really playing his own game. And I appreciate okay, that. Wait, so, so Raj, when you say that he sacrifices himself for a specific reason, what is I, that reason? Well, 
I, I don't know that I could articulate the exact reason that I think Herbert was going for, but at least there's more to that arc that I feel like I can guess at some of the reasons. I definitely think that he was just heartbroken. I mean, basically he came back and Alia was, I think, his anchor. And then when he knew that she was lost, you know, that was one of the reasons he decided his 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 um life wasn't wasn't necessary. But also I think I think he's he's uh you know who he is? He's he's like the way I see it just now, it popped into my head. Mercutio. When when Mercutio in Romeo and Juliet says a plague on both your houses, he's just sick of what's going on. He served the Atreides. He says again, he died twice for them now, and both of them were worthless. And so I think he's just basically given up on this, this arcane, you know, political maneuvering thing that sets these people against each other. It's almost like they're they start off playing these schemes and games when they mm-hmm. could have just all sat down and talked it out and figured out how to like fix things. Um, so, so that, that is my understanding of sort of where he's coming from, well, you know? Well, well, here's what I, so I agree with you. That is one of the most powerful um, scenes in the book. Um, and here's the thing. I think they actually do mention at some point that people don't act people like s- slink around like snakes trying to position themselves and they don't act. Duncan's a man of action. He's a Mm -hmm. swordsman. He's a thinker. Um, And that's him acting and forcing. He he did that to force Stilgar's hand, to force him to take Ganema and leave. He wasn't going to do that. You're right. He he literally spends that whole beginning of that chapter saying, I'm not going to do this. I'm not, I'm waiting. So he does it specifically. He sacrifices himself to save Ganema, you're right, you're and right. and uh, and Stilgar, because Stilgar's still his friend. Um, you know, he 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 has now sacrificed himself twice for House Atreides, which is why he smiles when he dies. Yes, exactly, exactly. By the way, I think Stilgar remains the same for me through all the books. Whereas, like, I'm not, I don't, I don't dislike him, but I don't like him. He's sort of just there, like doing his own thing, and I'm like, what, what? you know, he almost kills thinks about killing Leto in the beginning and then he's like, I never know where he is, but I feel like that's part of his character. He's just so Fremen that he follows his own code kind of thing. Yes, exactly. He is, he is the ultimate Fremen. He, um, and he does a lot of lamenting about the, the losing the, the real life of the Fremen. And I think he is the, he's like the conscience of conscience of the Fremen. Um, Mm -hmm. and, but he doesn't know how to act within this new world. And he's pretty much spends the whole book being really depressed and not being able to make a move because he, either way he will um, violate some code. Can I just ask you guys a question though? Like, because one of the hinging moments of this whole book is on the fact that the realization that if they keep on, you know, with this terraforming or, or ecological change on Arrakis, that the sandworms will die out, right? Because yeah. they're bringing water yeah. and water is inimical to the, the sandworms and they're already kind of rare at this point. And I I just had this moment of like, how is this, this kid the first one who thought about this? Because they already know the relationship of the water and the spice and the worms. Paul knew that, you know, it, it's well known. So Liette Kynes, I assume, knew that. So why is it that no everyone's like, no, that can't happen? Like I, I get if if they're like, you know, Fremen who live out in the desert and they're not up up to date on these things, but there's all these mentat smart people all over the place. And nobody has figured that out. And I found that to be such a dud of a revelation um, that it was like 
didn't move me. You know, like it, it wasn't like a oh my god. It was sort of like yeah. Why didn't well, you think of that? You know, I mean, if you go back to the first book, right? Doctor Liet Kinds fed them this idea of paradise that you know the 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 fremen are are living these difficult lives in these sieges in in the desert and you know they they water is extremely rationed they have to wear still suits just to go outside to contain their water and you know along comes lee at kinds and he's like you know i'm going to make it rain on arrakis and he's like when he first came there he said oh this is the project of you know, generations. I forgot what he said. Uh, hundreds of ge- yeah, exactly, yeah. Like generations. So it was like, it it was kind of like, in a sense, like a, a uh, you know, a, a religious eschatology, maybe with you know, without the the apocalypse, but it's like like this promise of paradise in the future. And then along comes Paul Atreides, Moadib, and he's like, I'm going to bring it now. And and there's, I think that's part of the the theme of Dune is this idea that the paradise quote unquote, that uh, a Messiah brings may not actually be Mm. good. Right. Because this jihad sweeps across the universe. I forget how many billions are are killed and the spice, which is the very, you know, essence of space travel without which they can, they can go from planet to planet is dwindling because of this. So I, I think it was just, um, the idea that humanity um, wasn't really aware of what this future would bring, and I and I think um, uh, Leto is is sees this and sees that the only way that humanity will survive is is by doing this crazy transformation and and basically um, forcing humanity into a kind of uh, moribund stasis for 4,000 years, uh, after which there will be some terrible calamity, which is only hinted at, and then, uh, will change humanity forever. And then at, at that point, only then will humans be free. And, and yeah. So have you guys read God Emperor of Dune? I have not. Long I, time ago. Yeah. Long time ago. Okay. So, so you have a vague idea of where the story goes beyond What's, very what's vague. In this book? Very vague. Same. Yeah. Very vague. Extremely vague to the point where I can't remember a lot. Yeah, I can't remember a lot at all. Well, you do you remember it being good? Compare like how did you <sighs> It's it's hard for me to say because as I said, I hated these two books when I was 14 <laughs> and when I, if I'm if I read that at 14, I probably I think I probably thought it I it was it sucked. But but I can't tell you right now, you know, I'd have to read it. Uh, again, to tell you whether I think it's good or not. Because, mm-hmm. I mean, I, heard, I saw a lot of people online were saying basically, like, to understand this book, it helps a lot to read God Emperor of Dune. And one of the things I've noticed with, you know, with the three books that I've read is that Herbert has this uh, pattern of having things be extremely opaque and vague in one book and then explaining them very clearly in mm-hmm. passing in the next book. So I could I could imagine um, maybe if you've read God Emperor of Dune, it explains some of the stuff going on in this book. Uh, so you know what that well, means, th- Dave. That means we have to do a podcast on the next book. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> well, no, I think we. I mean, just I, I don't know. I've heard so many people talking up God Emperor of Dune. I feel like I we do need to read it. It seems like a lot, like 
The consensus basically is that if you're going to read the sequels, that you should at least get to that one. That's what I heard as well. Yeah. 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 But I I think that you're to your point, Dave, I, I, you know, like we learned in this book what Paul was reluctant to do or Mm -hmm. refused to do in in the previous two books, um, which was just kind of this vague thing that we didn't know what it was. And now we know what it was because Lita goes ahead and does it. So uh, I won't spoil it yet until we're ready to talk about it. But well, yeah. I, I think we've kind of spoiled it already. But yeah. but so so I sent you guys. There's a scene in the book where Leto and Paul are reunited, and it you know it's we know by this point that the preacher is definitely Paul, and he and um, Paul and Leto have this conversation about like their competing visions of the future and who's going to prevail and why Paul made the choices that he made and why Leto's making the choices that he made, and I just wonder was that all clear to everyone or like uh because it's a pretty so, <laughs> uh, my understanding is is the is the following and please correct or add to this if if i'm if it's not complete so basically like what you said dave that uh paul saw the future the quote-unquote golden path and saw only the four thousand years of stagnation Whereas Leto looked further and saw that without this 4,000 years of stagnation, humanity would go extinct. So Leto realizes that the only way to keep humanity from going extinct is to force them into this calamitous moment, which is going to be worse than anything that Moadib did, or Moadib's religion, worse than the billions killed in Moadib's jihad. But on the other side of that, humanity continues to exist. Without that, you have eventual senescence and extinction. Yeah. I mean, yeah. that's how I read it. I, yeah, that, yeah, that sounds exactly I, I right think, to me. I think the crux of this conversation is when um, when Paul says, or thousands, you know, where Lita says, yeah, a thousand years of peace. That's what I'll give them. And Paul yells, dormancy stagnation, which made me think how I think the point of this is he's trying to point out that peace is stagnation. War and strife leads to innovation and evolution. And when you look at, at history, that bears it up in, you know, World War II was horrific, but it brought us advances, very quick advances in science and engineering and medicine. Um, and if you, if anybody remembers Fifth Element, there's a scene where Zorg uh, brings, is talking to the priest, and he talks about how chaos and destruction encourages life. And it's the same concept that living in peace, we become soft. You know, like he talks about the, the wet, the wet faced Fremens, the new Fremens. We become soft, but in, in chaos, destruction, and strife, is when we become more innovative and we evolve. And I think that's what, that's the crux well, of that whole conversation. So, so there yeah. seems to be three motivations that I can think of or that I saw people mention online for why Paul doesn't do the, the golden path. And one is that he doesn't want to turn into a worm. Two is that it, it involves a degree of destruction that he just can't bring himself to stomach. Mm-hmm. And three is that he can't see as far as Leto does to see all the consequences. I think all of those all, actually yeah, work. Yeah. 
there just seems to be like a, a little bit of a weird contradiction to me where Leto, and maybe maybe this becomes clearer throughout their conversation, but but Leto at one point says like Paul just basically didn't have the the fortitude or resolve or something mm-hmm. to to do mm-hmm. what needed to be done. But then that seems to conflict to me with the idea that if 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 Paul only saw a bad future along this golden path, then it's not a lack of resolve or fortitude that caused him not to take it. It's just yeah, it's I mean you know, it's here. The in consequences the text. are seem bad to him. Paul goes, is is the typhoon struggle necessary? And Leto says, it's that or humans will be extinguished. And then Paul heard the truth in Leto's words, spoke in a low voice, which acknowledged the greater breadth of his son's vision. And then he says, I did not see that among the choices. So like he literally says, I didn't, I didn't see what you saw, the third option or the whatever option it was, like, like Matt said, where, you know, he, he saw something that Paul didn't. So, I mean, I, I don't know why that would be, but I I think the implication was that he didn't look far enough that he kind of shied away from yeah. the visions right. after a while That's because he was so it. shattered by them. So another thing he says in that passage, uh, to your point, Dave, is that Paul, even though some of his acts resulted in great evil, he never believed they would result in that before he took them. He would never do an evil act willingly, whereas Leto's like, no, I need to do this evil act because only on the other side of this will humanity survive. And I think like it was almost Paul saying, you know, I can't go against my, my morality. And whereas Leto's like, so, so is Paul saying that if, if he could have seen what Leto saw, he still wouldn't have done it just because he lacks the stomach to cause that much I th- suffering. I think that's, I think that's what he's saying. Cause I, I think he's also shattered by the amount of death that he's already caused and and you know leto saying that this is going to cause cause much worse and i wonder if that's partly because he was raised the way he you know on caladan by the duke in the atreides Mm -hmm. sort of noble hero fashion whereas these kids were raised on arrakis with fremen Fremen. and and there is a uh, there's a whole talk there about how leto is actually fremen and he says to paul you weren't raised fremen by the we way, are real Fremen. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, I I just want to shout out to Irulan, who who surprised me at being kind of like a decent person in this in this book, and sort of like grew to love the kids, which I I kind of found a really cool concept because you know it goes against sort of what we were led to believe previously that I was just this formality. But man, poor House Karina, they keep getting shafted all the time when it comes <laughs> yeah. to like. Could, could, could I ask? Could I ask you, because there's this scene where Irulan, because the um, Carino uh, Wenzisha, Irulan's mother? Sister. Right, is, sister. Sister, is it right. Sister is, or, it's sister or aunt? Or, or no, because really, I think, I think no, it's no, her it's sister. Sorry, it's she's, sister. The daughter it's, it's, of, she's the daughter of Shaddam IV, and, yeah. and so that's why Faradun is his grandson. So. Yeah, so, 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 um, so Wenzisha is plotting to assassinate uh, Leto and Ganema with this, like by training these alien tigers to attack anyone wearing these particular clothes, and they give the clothes as gifts to to Leto and Ganema. And Irulan is sort of like advocating, "Oh yeah, we should accept this gift. We should accept this gift." And so I thought it was ambiguous whether she knows about the plot or not. Whether she just like does she just want to accept the gift because it's like a gift from her family and she wants to be polite, or does she know about the plot and she's like trying to effectuate the plot? And I, I, there was no resolution to that 
question. I didn't as far think. As I, I didn't think that she wanted. I think she wanted to protect the kids. I don't think yeah. she would have willingly put yeah. them in danger. I think she I might think have been former in favor of the the marriage, you know, between Ganema and right. Faradin, which would yeah. have united their houses. But I I believe that she loved when she tells Ganema that she loved them like they were her own children. I believed it. Like I felt yeah, like yes. that worked for me too. Um, it's funny because again, everyone else kind of like says how she doesn't really know, you know, she, she's off to the side. Everyone looks down. Jessica looks down on her. Alia yeah. looks down on her in terms of like, she's not plotting and scheming, but like she is the only one there that actually like professes actual love for those kids. Like there's yeah. nobody else who does, um, which I kind of find amazing. Well, it's I, funny too, Raj, when you were saying that Duncan was your favorite character, weirdly in this, my, my favorite character was Faradin. Because yeah, I he felt was like cool. He was, yeah, he's great. I yeah. loved him. He was unexpected. But, he he didn't go like every time I thought I knew where he was going. He did something different. Like I thought he was cool. Yeah, but like I'm he like I can morals. sort of relate relate he's to a, him emotionally. I kind of knew what he wanted and knew what he was about. And you were kind of like with him along for each step of the journey, especially so. when he sent his mom packing. I was. All <laughs> that, so. I and just, I really like where Jessica's training him in in Bene Gesserit ways. Yeah. Yeah. I, 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 I thought he was going to flunk out because he's just sitting there like, I can't do it. I'm like, it's been like two minutes, dude. Like, give it some time. And then <laughs> yeah. all of a sudden he's he's okay. But I see, the, I, I liked him. Um, I assumed that at the end he was still going to marry Ganema and become emperor because Leto was turning into a worm. But I guess he's not. So I, that, that part was not, didn't make so much sense to me because how can you be emperor and be off like, strolling through the desert with like worm flesh. I don't know. Um, and by the way, you got assistance to take care of all that stuff. That, that is my second biggest thing that I hated about this book is super powered worm flesh. Leto just drove me crazy. Cause he just starts throwing doors and, and, and like punching worms and like jump Like he can jump. I'm like, this is, how does that happen just from wearing the sand trout on your body? Like, how are they, how is this organism, which is supposed to be like very primitive, giving you super strength, allowing you to jump. And I, I get if you want to slide through the desert, they're designed to do that. But like, how is he super strong from, from that kind of stuff? I don't get I it. I mean, I, I think Herbert has always hinted that there was something mystical slash supernatural about the worms. And I think that when his flesh merges with the sand trout, he gains these, you know, near supernatural powers. Um, I mean, I, I, I will uh, say yeah. I love, so I, I, people had told me like, oh, you know, he turns into a worm. I'm like, uh, I didn't get that far. But like when I read how it happens, I mean, it's a little, there's a lot of setup for the sand trout stuff that happens again, right before that, where, you know, it's like, if you bite into them, they give you energy. And so like when he starts making a still suit out of it, you're like, oh, perfect. Because like they contain, they, they absorb water and they produce energy. So it's essentially an organic still suit, which is rather convenient. But, um, I was cool with the weirdness of it because it wasn't anything that I would have imagined. And I, I, I understood that he can sort of command worms because they're conditioned not to go near water and not to harm their, their, you know, younger life form phase, uh, all that stuff made sense to me, but it, it, I think for me, and I'll just say for me, and I love superhero comics and movies and all that kind of stuff, but it felt 
like suddenly like a comic book hero jumped into this Dune novel that I was reading and it was jarring to me how yeah. those action sequences went and were not very well written in terms of like, you know, they're very quick and all of a sudden he's just doing these things and I was like, wait, what the hell's going on here? Yeah. And I, I, I agree with that. It was like the Venom suit in Spider-Man yeah. is what it made me think of. Like, and all the um, other combat and stuff is so subtle and like, you know, slow blade penetrates the shield and like everyone's using the Chris knives and they're using these kind of like delicate little things. And here's Leto and with worms all over his skin, just like punching doors down and ripping things apart and, you know, and just yeah. like like at super speed, like I and and in my mind, I think I probably had this Super Mario like image of him just like going around mm. jumping and like punching things and whatever. Anyway, sorry, go ahead, but, Andrew. But I just think I, we haven't talked about how he the whole time he's doing this, he keeps talking about how he's changing his own chemistry, which is something yeah. he can do in on his own. Sure, he's he's able to change his chemistry because of his mastery of his own body. Um, and his DNA. And I think what happens is he changes his chem- chemistry and that new chemistry combined with whatever's coming off him from the, from the, um, from the sand trout is what changes him into something else. And this thing, you know, the, the chemistry changes in his body give him but, these powers. And yet I he's also thought- a 10 year old boy still. Yeah. I just thought it should have been a little more gradual and a little more toned down. Like, yeah, me too. That's that, that's fair. That's that's fair. the only thing I would say. I don't I don't want it removed, but it just felt too much all of a sudden. And and I feel like maybe Herbert was enjoying it, or like maybe it was just like, oh, cool, like now he has worm suit on. But um, I mean, the coolest part was when he's like, it's now the cilia are like you know yeah. joining yeah. with his flesh, and I was like, okay, cool. Now, now I like this idea. But um, I, I also like Faraday being like. When is he going to take that suit off and, and kind of be like, <laughs> well, actually, yeah. Um, what do you think? Matt? Do you like it? I, I I did have that a little bit of a surprise when he's kind of like leaping around and and with with superpowers, but I I did I did really like it because, um, you know, like you said a lot of stuff sort of happens at this uh, really slow pace. And then all of a sudden you have, you know, Lido just like smashing the, the, the Quinats, the, the water storehouses and like undoing the work of like a decade of planetary engineering in, in, in just like a month. And, and I, I really enjoyed that. And then, you know, I, I think, like I think they established that the worms have a lifespan of, sometimes thousands of years, if I'm not mistaken. So the fact that he's merging with them and adjusting his body chemistry to match theirs, I really like that idea that he's, he's becoming this um, near invulnerable being that's going to last thousands of years because he's essentially installing himself as this emperor that cannot be touched so that he can save humanity. So I, I think that's pretty cool. And I, and I, I love the idea that it's it's a worm. You know, it's not like it's not, it's not like sexy. This, it's yeah. not this like beautiful creature, like right. a, like I don't know, an eagle or or a yeah. horse or something. It's it's a worm, which which most people find fairly repulsive, and that's what he's merging with, and that's what's going to save humanity, but not before a terrible calamity. That part of it, I, I found, uh, really worked for me in in a body horror way. 
Yeah. I think you're right, though. I think it's possibly because it was so slow. And then all of a sudden, there's all this stuff happening very quickly that I think that was part of the jarring nature for me. And it's only around Leto. But I also will say that now that I'm thinking about this, that, you know, they, they do set up that he has been force fed probably more spice than anyone has ever had ever mm-hmm. before. Um, which again, seems like a very stupid tactic, but whatever. Um, but they force feed him all this spice. So I, I would imagine that he has also other abilities that no one else has had before because of that, um, possibly too. So, I mean, also think of the fact that if you were able to command memories of countless people, all of your previous ancestors going back to, you know, don't bring that up right? again, please. <laughs> or, or, I, I mean, just think of all the knowledge that you would have and, and the abilities. By the way, isn't the end of this sort of like, you know, one of those mystery novels where like they arrange for everyone to be in the same place so that like the, <laughs> so, the end so can be revealed? Because like they all end right. up, yeah, they all end up sort of in there, except for I guess Paul never quite makes it all the way. But yeah. um, uh, I actually, I, I mean... I think it because I love Paul Atreides as a character I, and, and I kind of loved the blind kind of seer. Like to me, that mm-hmm. archetype just really works for me. I, I was sad when he died. I mean, I know he probably had no other purpose and, and whatever, but like I, I, I thought he was cool. I don't know. And it was also like he died, but we're in the point of view of like up from the, the watchtower or the watch yeah. room. So it's like we didn't – we weren't actually like – down there when he died and just to see it and like kind of see it from his eyes or at least nearby. But, but I mean, yeah. Jessica never gets to see him and yet right. like she's the only one who doesn't, you know, get the Paul realization, but I guess she doesn't deserve it. Right. Cause she's, yes. she's kind of, you know, that's it's her fault. That is her, her punishment is to not to connect one last time with her son and also to watch both her children die Yeah, because of her acts. And I also think that, Herbert intentionally had Paul die, maybe not off camera so much, but from a distance, just to show that, like, you know, a great leader, quote unquote, great, like, just can die just like anybody else and, and, and just like a scrum and he's just dead and that's it. And it's not like, you know, I, I think over and over again, we see Herbert reinforce this idea that, you know, Maybe you shouldn't always trust the hero or the demagogue, you know. Yeah. Well, that's the, where the point. That's his point, yeah, I think. Yeah. And, and just, I think that's why we see Paul die in this kind of, I don't want to say pathetic, but like this, well, this it, sort it, of ignoble way. way. Like, but it's like, yeah. it's not that far from like Gandhi, right? I mean, Gandhi was just like in this mm-hmm. crowd doing a thing. Somebody pulled out and shot him. I mean, like it, it's, yeah. yeah. So that's a good yeah point. All right. So we need to start. Wrapping this up pretty soon. Did anyone have any like other big topics that they were just dying to talk about? I just want to say, we- I said my two big things, but I, I in terms of just the writing, like the, he has an awful lot of repetition of certain things in this in this book. Like mm. I feel like he decided that there were such things as spice fibers and then everything, you know, is spice fiber rug, spice fiber curtain, spice fiber, whatever. Yeah, I have I'm that sort of like, down. I'm like, why? And then, you know, he repeats the abomination quite a lot. There's, there's certain, you know, like certain words and like Jakaru, 
Jakrutu is like, you know, just like, there's a lot of times where I'm like, oh God, that word again or whatever. And I, you know, I guess he's, it's funny which things he reinforces over and over again, which things he doesn't, because you don't really understand the importance of Jakrutu until like, again, much later in the book. Um, And it's meaningless before then. Um, They don't even tell you that it was like where they used to, you know, like you don't learn that it's where the Fremen who used to steal other people's water was until later. And to be honest, I don't know, maybe you guys picked it up earlier, but like when Leto's like, oh, they found Paul in the desert and took him there. And that helped kind of, you know, shape where Paul ended up. And I, I didn't even get that until he mentions it. Was that supposed to be clear before that? No, no, no. Yeah. So anyway, that, that's well, my, my well, this is the thing is that like, again, I love Herbert's world building and ideas, but I don't really like his storytelling style. And this, this reminds me so much of Game of Thrones, like George R. R. Martin obviously took a lot from Dune, yeah. but I, I just like his storytelling style so much more. I just like the minor characters come to life more. The major characters, I feel like I can emotionally identify more. It has the same sort of epic feel and politics and world building and everything. And I, ju- I just feel like it's in my opinion, just like objectively in advance in storytelling craft. Yeah, I mean, I think Martin writes from a very close third person point of view. So you really get into your character, into the character's heads. Yeah, but I think there's also like we were, you were talking before about how you have these, you know, minor characters, like the the one that you mentioned, Dave, that jumped out to me was Javid, because, you know, he set up that he is going to be this agent, Alia, you know, ends up it forcing a or or like making a sexual relationship out of it so she can better control him and really he's just sort of there in the background and then he's there for Duncan to kill him and he doesn't really do anything and yet other writers might actually know like give him some kind of you know cuz every character has a life every character is the hero of their own story and we get no inkling of anything about this dude like Namri at least we get something from Maurice I think or Muniz what we get something about but like this guy is just like this again sort of mustache right mustache twirling you know cut out in the background and I feel like again I I I think you're right I don't think Herbert cares about that it's just sort of a piece to, to move the other pieces around but I do think whether you're telling a close third or whatever or distant third there's no thought given to like you know or maybe give him some kind of quality that we can cling to like oh he, he you know he he really likes to drink his coffee cold or something i don't know what it is but i feel like a lot of writers would do that just to to give it a little bit more life and i think mm-hmm. that there are places where herbert just doesn't even bother you know well i, I actually have a note it, it says you know when we learned that gurney hollock plays the balisette that one detail makes him the best developed character in all of Dune because well, also like, ink. He has an ink vine scar. Don't forget because, <laughs> because like so much, like so much else. It's it's just like all we know about the characters is what's relevant to the plot, and there's no like color beyond that. And so, mm. yeah, I I just think well, that's something that Herbert could improve on for sure. But do you the- think? Go ahead. I, I was just thinking, like, and I said this earlier that this is a very old-fashioned style of writing, which fits because he's from, or at least ju- just after that um, golden age of science fiction, um, Herbert, I mean. And I don't know, Dave, if you remember, we did a panel on um, a George R. R. Mar- a show that was made from a George R. R. Martin novella, um, Night Flyers. Night Flyers, yeah. right. Yeah. And mm-hmm. so we watched the show and then we also read the story. And I remember very vividly at the time saying that this is a very old fashioned writing. It's very un- unaccessible 
It's Mm -hmm. very dead on the page. And I remember specifically saying, this is very old fashioned. And I think you watch as, as um, George R. R. Martin gets older, his, he evolves as a writer. So I think he's coming, he's influenced by the writers like Herbert and, and Asimov and those guys, and he evolves. So I think this touches also on the evolution of writing and science fiction writing that, that Matt talked about, that we are very different writers now. Fiction and prose is very different than it was. But are you guys saying like the way this is written is like it worked for me, but it could be improved on? Or you're saying like, no, they're just different ways and there's not, it's not, one's not better than the other? It worked for me and it doesn't work for me in other things. This worked for me. And I think maybe it's just because it challenged me a little more because it's more about philosophy than about science. Does that yeah, make this, sense? This definitely worked for me. It, it, it like pinged all the things I love about yeah. science fiction, uh, the grand scope. And history. Um, the, the history, uh, the sense of awe. Um, there's there's a, a mystery and a kind of um, uh, strange alienness about the worms. Yeah. Um, the spice, the prescience, and and but I'm uh, I'm talking specifically about the the storytelling, the storytelling style. Yeah, I I think that it's it's there were times where I agree that it was a a difficult read, but that didn't mm-hmm. mean that I didn't enjoy it. Yeah. A hundred percent. It made me work for it. Yeah. And, and I liked that. Um, yeah. and that's not like a, you know, I'm not saying I don't like current fiction. I do. And I love getting into the head of a character and I love close third and I really love first person, but this sort of touched really serious, the history lover in me and the mm. religion, the person who's interested in religion, it really touched a lot of spouts for me. So if it was just a little more uh, inaccessible and stilted than I would normally read now, um, it didn't bother me because uh, it worked for this particular book. It worked right. for this particular story. Whether, you know, some in, and in the hands of a less talented writer, it wouldn't have worked. I would have been pissed. Agree, hundred percent. I just want to. You mentioned Asimov, and as I was reading this, I I was like, oh, this has very similar themes to Foundation, right? Because you're someone has a prescient vision of humanity's fall and has to do something to preserve it, which I thought was an interesting parallel. Um, it was also. I noticed that uh, at one point Herbert says that the the Bene Gesserit are afraid of artificial life extension, that they have the power to adjust their uh, internal chemistry, (laughs) internal chemistry, enzymes and whatnot to, to live, you know, artificially long life, even beyond what spice enables, but they don't do it because they know that humanity would turn against them. And what's interesting is that uh, Leto chooses to 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 actually do this in the end to extend his life so i wonder you know yeah, but he's got uh, worm powers nobody's fucking with that giant worm god <laughs> no but i mean he does say that it's going to end badly for him he does yeah. say that um, actually we actually went our panel i think it was on our panel on foundation i had come across a reference where somebody on the internet claimed that um frank herbert got the idea for dune 
by reading Foundation, Asimov's Foundation, and saying, what if the story was told from the point of view of the mule? Uh, and I like tried to find confirmation for that, and I couldn't. But if anybody knows um, anything about that, let me know, because I thought that was a really interesting uh, idea. Um, two other um, cool things that I that I liked about this. I love that, um, like, you you know how Herbert, at the beginning of each chapter, he has a little quote from yeah. a, a book or whatnot. And the um, you have the one where you find out that the historian Hark al-Ada is actually Faradin the whole time. And I thought, oh, that was great. Because, like, oh, we've been reading these oh. quotes all along. <laughs> and then and then Faradin's saying, well, my true interest is history. And I should have figured that out from the beginning. But then at the end, he's like, I'm going to rename you Hark al-Ada. Yeah. And, and you're like, oh, that was so cool. I didn't get that. Me neither. Yeah. And then, <laughs> oh, oh no, and ahead. then the other thing I will say is, like, Atreides house ferrets. Yeah, yeah. like, <laughs> like I, I, you know, that's awesome. They actually have trained house ferrets. That's yeah. amazing. Yeah. And, mes- and messenger and, bats and too. messenger bats. Messenger, yeah. yeah, I think yeah. I, if I, I'm hoping. So, like, you know, you're talking about world building stuff. These little touches. Like one of the things that somehow always excites me when I read about it is Ix. And mm. one, I love that it is named Ix because it used to be the Roman numerals for nine, and they just mm-hmm. forgot, and now they just call it Ix. And it reminds me of that line in the Lynch Dune where the guild navigator goes many machines on Ix. But like what they, <laughs> I think allude to here is that Ix is using tech technology mm-hmm. and like is skirting the lines between like, compu- you know, the, the Butlerian Jihad yeah. prohibition against computers. And I want to know more about that. I know we got some yeah. Laxu in the last book and I just, I just, think there's something about that that's mysterious and interesting and i want more of that external world coming through because we get you know this is a very dune centric book um we get people coming in who are bene Gesserit, i mean jessica only and then we have duncan who's a mentat but we don't get a lot of the you know the guild isn't yeah. really there we don't really get these external things so i'm hoping the next book has a bit more of that stuff because i think you know i agree that that i think i've said it before herbert like lucas is a master at creating a world efficiently with these, like just sometimes simple strokes that evoke mm-hmm. these huge vistas. And, but I, I do want to explore some more of that stuff beyond Dune itself next yeah. week. All right. Possibly. So we are like way, way over time. Yeah. So we need to wrap <laughs> this up, but we'll be doing more. I guess, I guess we're all on board for God Emperor of Dune. Yes. So we'll have more <laughs> yeah. to say. Yeah. Yeah. About that. And then we'll also, the plan is we're also going to be reviewing the Sci Fi Channel. Children of Dune miniseries, and of course, Dune Part 2, which will be out, I think, March 1st. So everybody, uh, you know, have those to look forward to. But uh, I think we're going to have to, for the moment, I think we're just going to have to wrap things up there. So we've been speaking with Andrea Kale, Matthew Kressel, and Rajan Khanna. So thanks, everyone, so much for joining us. Thanks, Dave. Thanks, Dave. Thank you. And that was our panel. So big thanks again to Andrea Kale, Matthew Kressel, and Rajan Khanna for joining us on the show. This episode of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy was made possible thanks to support from listeners like you. So if you enjoy the show and want it to continue, please support us on Patreon over at patreon.com geeks, or via PayPal over at geeksguideshow.com crowdfunding. All right, so that was our show. So thanks everyone for listening, and we'll see you next time. The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is a production of Wired.com. For more information about the show, 
visit geeksguideshow.com. To learn more about your host, visit davidbarkirtley.com. Music and voiceover produced by yours truly, Jack Kincaid. If you enjoyed this program, tell your friends. If you didn't enjoy it, tell no one. Thank you for listening.